begins now. Capital 263. <laughs> Welcome to Politics and Beyond on Capital 263. My name is Christopher Farai Charamba. And I am Tawanda Henry uh, Beatty. Yeah, welcome to yet another episode of the best political podcast in the country, in Africa. We're claiming it. You know, we're moving beyond. We're going cross-continental. Um, you were just listening to the sounds of the late, great comrade Chinks Chingaira. Uh, may his soul rest in peace. We thought that it would be a great tribute to start off with a little bit of Comrade Chinks. Chikopokopo is one of my favorite songs. That's why I played it. Um, yeah, so today is the 21st of June, 2017. 2017. Let's not go back to last year. Um, we've got a guest with us in the studio. Good friend of mine, Mukoma Zua Matondo. Um, welcome. Hello, hello, guys. Uh, thank you for having me. Um my name is Zua Matondo, as uh, Chris just said, and uh, it's, it's an honor to be here with you guys. Yeah, so um, on today's show, we're going to talk about uh, Comrade Chinks. I'm just going to give a bit of his uh, history and background, you know, what he's done and why I believe he should have been named a national hero. Um, I'll get the other guys' opinions on that. Uh, and also, what else do we have, Henry? Um, we'll speak about, um, you know, a picture going around, uh, doing the rounds online right now and the general concept of, you know, a streamlined cabinet. And, um, then I think that besides that and some, some, some local news and, uh, a couple of things going on, um, in the Herald, um, regarding their personnel. <laughs> why are you always wanting, why, why must it always be about the Herald, Shah? Just because I wake there, it, it becomes an issue. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, let's. And, um, as, as we, <laughs> as we get uh, on, we will give, um, you know, Zua a chance, um, to speak about this really incredible, um, initiative, um, that he's a part of and, um, um, and indeed uh, has begun uh, called Governance Africa. And yeah, he, I think, you know, I can only even just say the name. He'll give us a complete view of what that is and um, how, you know, perhaps our listeners can get involved and um, what we can all do to, to, really, um, to really take part. Yeah, so, so that's, that's, that's the show, as, as you know, and as you've come to love it. Thank you to all our listeners. Um, so Comrade Chinks, uh, most people know him for you know for the music that he's put out. He's put out quite a lot of songs, but um, he's been a member of the ruling party Zanu PF. He went to the war. He was born in uh, 1955, September 27, 1955. He was actually born Comrade Dick Chingaira Makoni. Well, not the Comrade part. Dick Chingaira Makoni was <laughs> his name, but I don't know where. In the mix, it you know, people started calling him Dixon, and that sort of stuck. But his actual name is Dick. Um, he grew up in Rusape. That's where he did his primary school, at Chigora Primary School. Then he went to Blayo for his secondary education. 
And after that, he, you know, got a job for a while in 1974 and he wanted to go and become a doctor. But those plans to study medicine abroad didn't work out. Colonial times, getting papers uh, to leave the country was a problem. And so he was unable to do that. So in about 1975, he decided, you know what, let me go and join the liberation struggle because that's what a lot of the young people were doing. And he went over there um, and from a young age, he was a lover of music. So when he got there, he just, you know, because he had this passion, he joined the Takawira Choir, which then became known as the the Zanla Choir. choir. And at the time, it was under the leadership of Comrade Mereyariram Zimbabwe. Um, and after a while, because of his talent and because of his passion, Comrade Chinks then became the leader of this uh, Zanla Choir. And he composed a lot of songs. One of the ones um, that they sang, and there's a video of it, Maru um, Zaimi was um, sang at Zapasi, um, what was it called? Where the, After the war, when, I think early 1980s or when the war ended in 1980, 1979, they came back to this uh, Zapasi uh, center or place. I'm forgetting the actual name for the place in Buhera and you know all these comrades were coming back from the war and some of the the British um, or the Rhodesian forces and leaders came through and Comrade Chinks is seen in this video and he's singing the Maru Zaimi literally telling them you lost and he says all sorts of things about the shape of their nose and all sorts of things um, <laughs> uh, it was witty yeah he was very witty and it was it was quite great and then after that um, a lot of comrades were in the 1980s, after independence, uh, got jobs in 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 state institutions. So he went to ZBC and he worked um, there in as a um, technician for a few for for a few years. But he never stopped making music. Um, he teamed up with Benny Miller. Um, and, you know, they formed a band. He, that's when he recorded his songs, Ngorimba, Shukomborero, Nerudo. He then joined up with uh, Ilanga, uh, Don Gumbo as well. Andy, um, Andy Brown was also part of that band from about 82 to 87. And they were, you know, they were all under the same record company. So, and I think it was the, one of the first integrated record companies in Zimbabwe. And they were all making music. Um, you know, he had a stint with... Yeah, with, uh, that Jukumbrero song is probably the first, my first experience, um, or how I first came across him. Um, so yeah, no, I think that's, for me personally, that's probably, or maybe even for if there's others like me, because I would like to think that my story is not necessarily... Um, you know, it's sort of atypical of sort of our, our age group is around Jukumburero and um, that period is probably where we'd know him more from than um, obviously necessarily his work during the Liberation War. Yeah. And then I think it was in 1989 or early 1990s, he recorded um, Roja Confirm, which is, I think, one of the songs that a lot of people know him from, um, Mazana Black with Mazana Black Spirits. It was, you know, spent 25 weeks on the Radio 3's hit pick charts. Um, and then, you know, he continued with his life. 
was still making music and then Murambatina happened around the 2000 what year was that 2005 i think and you know it was 2005 yeah yeah so before that actually when Hondo Yeminda started he went back into the studio he'd been working at ZBC as a transmission controller went back into the studio recorded more songs um you know to do with uh um liberation more to do with the land reform in support of the land reform i actually think um Chikopo Kopo was recorded around that time i'd have to check but you know it's interesting in some of the lyrics they say a lot of things um which then is quite funny because now vakanganisa or according to the party but then yeah 2005 his his house was destroyed um in murambatsu i think there's a picture there's a picture um there's a picture um, i would love i wish we could link to it of um of him sort of near his house i think it's in chitunguiza which was had just been destroyed as part of um, operation rambatsuna yeah but you know and and that was that's a sad part and something we'll get into in terms of you know this man is a war veteran um he's gave his life pretty much for you know the country for the liberation of the country he gave his life to making music for zanu pf even when you know there was all that animosity and all that um controversy surrounding land reform there was so much that he continued to contribute and something like this then happens to him um he was then you know um i think he continued to you know still make music and he performed at a number of galas and all sorts of things that's also somewhere where you'd get to see him them dalaway to gala and all these things that used to happen back in the in the 2000s um and then he fell sick uh this year he was in hospital for a while he also received his a house in Mebrain from the in Sentosa from um Joseph Nyadzayo who is the chairperson of Zima which is Zimbabwe Music Awards so they were the ones 3 years ago they promised him this house and um they finally managed to finish it and it was donated to him last month and you know as fate yeah, would so have it, he then I, he then succumbed to his illness and he passed away last week friday um you know if 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 you like to believe in these things at least he, he knew could his family was in a a, a a a better position i guess at least they were in the house um so maybe it was all all intentional would he decided to, to to stop fighting at the end there because at least he knew that they had that house i was always under the impression um that the house was given by the government or had um been donated um based on uh, certain newspapers coverage of it um so 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 joseph yeah, no, joseph nyatsayo happens to also be the president's photographer so i think that's maybe where this whole um impression that it was from the government came up because he he works directly in the office of the president and cabinet but it really did yeah, it really I guess I know my my impression came from the fact that it was handed over by by Oh by the first lady by um by the first lady and uh, but um, but but you know I uh, but she's not a government official like looking I'm sure it was Pardon? I said she's not a government I'm, official. By, gov- by government, I was I was speaking of the party. <laughs> um, I was speaking of the ruling party, um, yeah, which is the power the party in power, which forms the <laughs> government. Um, 
in case you didn't know how our system is. Look at you taking shots. It's okay, it's okay. But yeah, so this is the legacy of Comrade Chinks. And unfortunately, you know, he hasn't, unfortunately, and I'll say this to me, he hasn't been named a national hero. He's been la- named a liberation war hero, which on the list you have national hero, you have provincial hero, and then you have liberation war hero, which used to be called district hero. So it's the lowest of the honors in terms of the hero status. And, you know, there's other people who have been snubbed. Uh, Lookout Masuku, Edgar Tekere, uh, to name a couple. And I think this is yet another snub of people who have, you know, gone to or who have not been given a national hero status. Um, one of the things that, you know, they say is that the Politburo sits and they decide. But the act, the National Hero Act actually said it is basically states that it's the prerogative of the president to say who gets to become a national hero. So like all, like most things in this country, the buck starts and stops with the president. He is the uh, one center of power, as they like to say. And so he gets, you know, to make that decision. And I think it's it's unfair because to a lot of people, and this is coming from both sides of the political aisle, to a lot of people, Comrade Chinks is a national hero. Oh, yeah, he's certainly a national, more a national hero than, um, you know, some people that have, have you know, like... I think it's, uh, let me go full lambic on it, and some people that have only gotten in there because of their contribution, um, you know, to the party during, you know, um, land redistribution or, or that whole bruaha, your, your comrades, um, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, your comrades Wunzi, your comrades Bodzagezis, um, you know, these people, at least in my humble opinion, uh, you know, uh, not to cast a story, on their families, but generally, I, I, I think that if one was just being objective of what would make a contribution or come up with a contribution to to, to society, and uh, you know, they're certainly less deserving than his he is. And I mean, you mentioned Lookout Masuku and and Edgar Tekere. These are, in many ways, even larger omissions. But um, I think when you have the likes of Kasukwere, Chipanga, and and these uh, Johnny come lately is having to decide who becomes a national hero in 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 um, political bureau. Then I don't think you're going to end up with anything that's that's like a, a legitimate or an, uh, you know an even reasonable system, really. Yeah, and you know it's interesting that you mentioned those two, but you've also got um, you know. Professor Jonathan Moyer, who's in Politburo, who people said that he ran away from the war. I don't know if Priska Fumira went. She's also in Politburo. Uh, you know, the First Lady Grace Mugabe is there. She didn't go to the war. Um, who else is there from, from the list? I can't, um, I'm not sure about, you know, um, Mike Bima as well. He's in Politburo. I don't know if he went to the war. But, you know, there's all these people now, and it... it it brings into question what is the criteria, what does one have to do to get national hero status? But you know, it's a very as we as I said, the buck stops and starts with the president. So I think personally I think it's wrong. I think that there really should be a way there should be a you know, a ministry or some sort of independent commission actually that determines these things. And there should be certain criteria that one should fulfill. But that said, in the hearts of 
you know, the people, myself included. I think, you know, he is a national hero. I don't know, Zoe, if you have anything to to say, especially on the aspect of national heroes and, you know, what oh. it symbolizes. Well, I think you brought up the main issues. I actually saw two main issues as as you guys were discussing. The first one being what is the objective criteria for uh, a national hero, you know? And then number two, who gets to decide? So basically, are we going to look for people who were in the struggle, fam- very familiar with the struggle, even though maybe they were not in the struggle themselves? So I think... Those are the main two issues. If there is an objective, if there's an objective criteria, who gets to decide that objective criteria? Should there be a public vote, perhaps? If someone is put forward, I don't know. Yeah, I think you. I think um, on a at least I, I I believe on a larger issue. Or a, a you know a more, a more policy based um, issue. It, eventually, it's going to have to come to a point where uh, you know a national hero should no longer be de- defined by your contribution in the liberation. Uh, a lot of people are, don't meet that criteria, but are no less heroes um, than you know those that have uh, contributed in, in the war. So, at some point, this is going to use its, lose its usefulness. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, it's, it shows Kuti, our government hasn't really evolved to the point where it's it's considering what's happening because it's 37 years afterwards. If, if, if you were born in 1980, you'd be, you know, 37 now, basically. So how can you, you know, in your short lifetime, you could have put some, made such an impact on the country, but you'd never be considered a national hero. So either there's going to have to be another award introduced um and, you know, on the group, I'd suggested maybe a president's medal or something like that to honor people in their lifetimes, or I mean, indeed, for for um, for better or for worse, just uh, scrapping the whole thing altogether and just um, letting those in the shrine, you know, rest forever in that shrine. Um, particularly after we bury the old man in there, and just you know, just putting the keys on the lock on the gate and then just. Uh, <laughs> Calling it a day on that, um, T- turning it into a museum for those who wish to, you know, because to be fair, there are a- so, there are some people there who, while there are some people there who I don't think should be there, there are some people there who definitely deserved to have gone there. Yeah, so, I mean, even over, I think overwhelmingly, let's be let's be honest, I think most people overwhelmingly in there do certainly deserve to do to certainly be, yeah. deserve to be there. Yeah, and um, you know, a lot of people who are coming deserve to be buried with their with their kith and kin um <laughs> but you know so that so that was oh, and, so that uh, um when we decide to go and uh, uh, find people to blame we can just go into one place and it's close to our area as well so we don't have to drive all over the country to, so guys, if, if we can actually start to discuss what, you know, if, if the liberation issue is one that soon enough will become outdated to to have as a, a important criteria for a national hero, what other criteria can we begin to have, right? So let's take someone who was born in 1980, they're 37 years old, and they can actually contribute to 
you know our nation culturally politically economically what have you in 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 a very very marked way what let's let's start discussing what sort of criteria can actually be used for a person like that and you mentioned the suggestion of maybe a presidential medal of on of, of something you know but then should that be the case should we not still keep them as a national hero because what what is a national hero you know as someone who's contributed to you know the nation the progress of our nation you know uh, uh the establishment of our nation if one one would say that as well which we've already dealt with but let's let, let's push the conversation forward now to what what sort of criteria do you think we can have i think uh, some of the things that should be discussed is they should be it should be divided into categories and definitely it one of the one of the key things across all categories should be what has been your contribution a positive contribution to Zimbabwe so it could be in sport it could be in you know health it could be in the different sectors that exist um, but it must have a national impact and I think there must be a wide section of society to determine and i honestly believe that there should be more honoring of people whilst they are alive because to be fair yeah, exactly num- number exactly, one right. number one not everyone will want to be buried at the national shrine number two if you we decide to you know continue naming heroes in whatever sphere we're gonna run out of space up there on that hill and also um it it ha- it has more impact when you have that person with you and you're honoring them for the work that they've done and showing that they are appreciated because then other people can aspire towards it. I mean, for example, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who really wish they could win a Nobel prize, you know, in different fears you have for, for, for literature, you have for economics, you have for science and things like that. And I'm sure the people who have the capacity to win one, uh, aspire to win one. So I think that there is more value in having a prize or a, a rec- um, uh, what do you call it? A commendation. For recognition. Recognition. Com- yeah. yeah. For somebody who is actually alive and who is present and, you know, who can also be there to share their story. One thing that I'm disappointed about talking about Comrade Chinks is that there's no book that Chinks wrote about himself. He lives through his music, but his story is also quite an interesting one from somebody who wanted to become a medical doctor at the age of 18 to someone who then went to the war and led a choir and went to make music, was in one of the first integrated bands in Zimbabwe, in, you know, a new Zimbabwe. There's, there's a story then that we unfortunately don't get to hear in full from him. We get bits and pieces. So I think it's very important to have something for people who are alive. Henry, you're going to say something? Yeah, no, I, I think. Yeah, no, I um, sorry, I'll let you. I don't, I don't. Yeah, I think Chris had had valid points there. I think um, the one caveat I might I might add is that um, you know, it's it's not just enough just for. I think even wider impact in the world certainly um, should get recognized by 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 the government or by our country and you know it's it also just seems a bit disingenuous to only be recognizing people when they when they've passed away um when when they're gone and uh, you know i don't i don't see whether it's a cultural thing um 
Could you offer one up? What's what the actual argument for not having a living award um, is for that? But yeah, I, yeah, the criteria you split it up into into sectors, into groups, and the sector basically, or people will stand out in the sectors themselves and and put themselves uh, forward. Um, just just based and in this day and age, having an online vote or having things like that for Zimbabwean of the Year, even a Zimbabwean of the Year award, really like. Um, something like that that's officially run by the government is is not something that's uh, terribly difficult to do. Mm. And do you think that people's families should potentially take more of an active role in organizing things like autobiographies being written about their family members who they believe have really made significant uh, um, contributions to the nation? Or are we also leaving that to the journalists, the historians, the academics as well, um, because I, 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 as I've been as, as I've been here, you know, I've maybe heard about two or three people who whose families are actively looking to have autobiographies written about them, and I think that's I think it's a pity that it has to come from the family as opposed to being recognized by let's say the broader historian academia uh, or political academia or what have you, but nevertheless. I think whilst these people are still here with us, as we all have been talking about, it's important. That's an aspect that can really push these people's stories, their contributions, you know, to the general public. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I think I don't know. I don't really know how. Sorry, Chris. I don't to cut you off. I don't know how it it works works or works in a number of countries, but we sort of have a missing. A missing, uh, you know, generation in academia. Um, certainly, I, I, I believe that a, a lot of a lot of the people that would have gone to university and would have might have drifted towards history or drifted towards journalism and things like this were maybe pushed into you know other subjects, law, engineering, economics. So you have, you know, that's one of our problems is that we haven't really had anyone um, significantly really be interested in writing, um, you know a retrospective of a lot of these people and i mean obviously the, the other thing is the economic situations is that it's very difficult to justify um you know spending a lot of money in, in this type of research um but yeah if the family can do it I, I, by all means they certainly should um because when an actual you know larger histories histories of, of certain periods are done memoirs and things um which are you know subjective in many ways which have either written by the person themselves or you know or, or biographies commissioned by the families which are generally always positive do form part of the larger lexicon or the larger things that uh, a historian would use to write a history of a period so it's, i don't i don't see a problem in that i think first you know first things first the story is yours and if your family your family should encourage you to tell it you know um some some people are reluctant and I understand why, especially when it comes to the war. War is a very nasty and brutal thing, and it has a very terrible psychological effect. And in this country, there was no counseling post that period. So a lot of people, you know, shut that period off and never want to relive it. But I think it's, it's important that we have these stories told because, you know, as we always say, history is always told by the victor and those who do right become authorities at a certain point in life. 
So we we definitely need to have this out. And um, credit to um, Arthur Mtambara who um, you know wrote something recently. But I think you know it's it, it's important that we definitely have people people writing um, these things. And you know maybe there should be a a ministry. Um, one of them, I think, we have the Ministry of Culture and um, something that should be responsible for this. Um, you know, in in our case, um, but you know, speaking of mysteries, ministries, we do have to move on to the next part of our topic. Um, so there's this um, pic that's been circulating. I saw it on Povo Zim on Twitter, and it's a 12-member cabinet for Zimbabwe. It's a proposal. Um, it's got Ministry of Finance, Ministry of Health, Ministry of Defense, Ministry of Education, Foreign Affairs, Ministry of Justice, Ministry of Industry and Commerce, Ministry of Home Affairs, Ministry of Environment Protection, Ministry of Local Government, Ministry of Infrastructure Development, Labor and Social Development. So that's 12 ministries. Um, I, I, I was interested in the proposal. I, I definitely think we have a very bloated uh, cabinet. Right now, I've got, uh, at last count, I think there are about 33 ministries. It's way too much. Yeah. It's way too and with much. So, yeah, what, what do you think, Zua, in terms of... <laughs> well, I think, you know, when we... Sorry, did, did I... Did I uh, no, carry on. I think, I think this, uh, again, I think this comes to a governance issue, to be honest, right? So being, what are the institutions that are needed to efficiently implement policy? So efficiency would mean a very targeted, narrow um, focus, no overlap with other ministries that can make issues redundant and therefore wasting of resources. And I think 33 for a country our size you know, is, is, is uh, always, I think it's round about there, is, is a bit much, you know. And I think any government that uh, would look to do things in an efficient way would have to streamline, you know, to, to, to <laughs> again, to efficiently implement the policies. Otherwise, you have people, ministries maybe fighting for a certain area at certain points, not knowing which responsibilities are going to which ministry at other points. And ultimately, things not being done. So that's my first take on this. We yeah. need to hear what you guys think. I, I, I agree. I just think that I don't know. <laughs> I'm sort of there's there's a. I was thinking of, of of what a new government would do because I mean obviously the reason that there's 33 ministries in Zim is because we live with a government that is addicted to political patronage and if you know you have to balance your your, your your ducks so that you can keep um, you can keep power by rewarding your 33 ministers and their deputies which you know at least and were you counting deputy ministers in that 33 because I don't think no I said, I, think thir- I said 33 ministries and you've got a cabinet size including the president and the attorney general of about 64 so there's some there's some it's, ministries without deputy ministers yeah so and there's uh, yeah and no, then, but and then the you, deputy, and do deputy ministers sit in cabinet? I no, deputy ministers do. don't sit in cabinet. And then you have ministers of state as well, which are, who were your governors before? I don't know if they sit in cabinet, but you've got so you've got thirty three ministries. That that much is clear. And then a full yeah. But I mean, all these guys get perks and they get you know benzes and they get all these things and 
So your full so your full executive <laughs> your full executive is sixty four or thereabout. Um. Yeah. So I think I think it's ridiculous because obviously the the, the reason guy is that if you have sixty four, you, you you have enough ministers in each province and areas to to coordinate your next campaign. Um. <laughs> that's that's really the reason that it's like that. I don't see any other reason for that. But now, if you're in this, uh, stuck with a situation where you're trying to rebuild Zim or to 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 come up with a, a post, you know, Zanu dispensation, you might need to have a little more than these twelve ministries because you might need to have something like mining with its own. Um, ministry, even though it does overlap with industry and commerce, you might need to have a minister of agriculture with the ambit of agriculture, even though it does um, overlap. You might need to have a ministry of, of um, you know, small and medium enterprises, even though that falls under the Ministry of Finance, purely because you're in a rebuilding or rehabilitative phase and you need, you know, the full-time um you know focused developmental energies of a of a political player and his own ministry's resources dedicated to that but if that's only works if there's a situation where the people are actually there to to do the work or do the job and not just to collect perks yeah so f- so for me um on this list um you know they said you know you put some of them like tourism with environment and protection you put um mining and agriculture and industry and commerce I don't think that's a good idea. I think for us, we need to target where our key sectors are. And this is when we are now looking at rebuilding this country. Definitely, we have to cut some ministries. Um, Some of them are really, you know, finance and economic development. You know, you have a ministry of economic development, I think, which is different from finance. You have a ministry of policy, policy coordination, which and social economic (laughs) ventures. You know, you have you have macroeconomic planning and investment promotion. So some of these you can cut them out. Like on on a very serious note, they're not necessary. But ones I definitely think we have to include is agriculture on its own because this country, um, a great part of its economy is on the bedrock of agriculture. You have to have mining on its own because I think it's a very technical sector and we need to get it right. So it needs to be focused. Um, we have to have energy on its own because. If we are when we start to recapitalize our industries, energy is going to be a big thing. Um, and I think uh, there was one more mining, energy, agriculture. Um, yeah, I think that's but the, it. Uh, but so, I mean, the, so, the, so, the counterpoint to that argument is that why not just put the economic clusters um, under one ministry of, of economic um, redevelopment and have him direct all five policies? Um, underneath his ministry, so you know, you say, you say, uh, you're Chris Ozua, you're Minister of Economic um, Redevelopment, and you oversee. And then instead of having a minister, you have instead a technocrat. You have uh, a, a PhD in engineering um, who spent five, uh, fifteen years, fifty years of their lives at Rio Tinto, um, uh, overseeing the mining um, sector. Because then you, just, for me, it's just then you you have one person. I think you're giving him too much responsibility, and I think in terms of getting things right, you just want someone who's going to be focused on that. 
I understand, you know, you then you have a technocrat, but that means this technocrat has to, resp um, what do you call it? Um, has to um, work with someone and they have to go and, you know, say, chef, please sign here and whatever it is. Why not just give this technocrat the job to do what it is that they're supposed to do? Because I think for me, it comes back to the issue of efficiency. How can they handle all those clusters under that one ministry, right? Especially if you're someone who's not technically skilled in those areas, right? Uh, and is, I, I look at it as, let, let's get the blueprint first, you know, of what we feel would work. And then we begin to, to, to test to see if that's going to be a way that's efficient or not. You know, uh, because if we're then going to take all these ministries away and then just add other bodies underneath ministers, if we cluster them in terms of resource management, uh, i.e. the resources going to those to those sectors, are we not just not we're not really cutting any fat away, are we? You know, really, uh, we're just sort of putting bodies and reorganizing them in a different way, you know, and uh, we should be forced to to do things that actually makes sense. And I think the more bodies that are involved in many instances, it just leads us to be a bit lazy in terms of being efficient. And that's where I stand right now. I'm willing to be convinced, you know, but that's what I feel right now. I think um, we, uh, it's almost a perfect segue into, into governance um, because, you know, a lot of people don't realize that in um, a lot of countries, government and and politicians outsource a lot of their policy making, or not necessarily outsource, but they rely on expert advice. So, the minister of of mining, for example, might, you know, ask the private sector for a white paper on a really complex issue, and you know, use that to incorporate it into into their policy making, or they might ask for suggestions on how to deal with uh, you know a tax problem from you know from from bankers um, so you know I think it's a perfect segue into 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 what you do so and um, maybe you can you know let the listeners know of of what sort of um, yeah of yeah just exactly what you do because I think that if people are already thinking about how governments operate um, I think that your stuff is incredibly interesting and probably fits in right here perfectly. Thanks, Henry. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, I, th I think, you know, so just a bit of background on myself. I studied, um, you know, political science and and international development in my undergrad. And then I was in Canada and then I had to do a law degree afterwards because you can't go into law school straight after upper, upper six, which my father quite didn't, uh, he didn't like that. He wanted me to go straight after A-level. Um, and I was in corporate law for a couple of, of years and, you know, but my passion has always been, you know, my country, you know, policy, governance in my continent. And, you know, I always was looking around Africa and seeing what what's going wrong. Is it that we come up with the wrong policies or that we have the right policies that are just implemented in the wrong ways? And I really began to delve deep into these things. And I decided that really it's a combination of, of the two. And we have many, many young Africans, uh, amazing young Africans like yourself and Chris, um, who are very passionate about getting involved in the decision-making process in their countries. And, and this idea of Govern Hans Africa came to my mind. And essentially what we do 
is what we are is, is an organization of young professional Africans, both at home and in the diaspora, who, number one, uh, propose innovative policy solutions to different uh, ministries and governments across the, co the, the continent. And then number two, we use our technical abilities in whatever area we are to where we can assist governments in the implementation of either existing policies or the policies that we are involved in trying to push or amend and enhance. And that's what Governance Africa does. And for us, the main theory is how do we efficiently and effectively implement policy that impacts people on the ground, right? So we want a situation where you can have a high-level policy discussed in parliament, passed in, uh, through whatever means in, in whichever governmental system, uh, but you don't have the institutions to implement it. And not even just institutions, but sometimes the personnel. You know, and again, it's not to say that the personnel are, uh, are incompetent, but sometimes they don't have the resources, sometimes they haven't had certain exposure. Uh, and what we do is we try to collaborate with them. We don't come in to, to advise and take over certain things outright. We work with uh, ministries, we work with uh, some technocrats in, in ministries to actually help implement some of these policies. And we've been in operation for about a year and a half now. And uh, you know, we've had some interesting experiences across the continent, to say the least, you know, from East to, to West Africa. Um, dealing with places like you know the African Union, government of Ethiopia, uh, um, the the government of Senegal, and you know just been involved in those different things. So we are about the efficient implementation of innovative and impactful policies. In a nutshell, do you have any policies that um, you can you can you know? talk about that you guys have worked on i think it's great first and foremost um what you guys are doing um you know to see young people uh, passionate about coming up with policy and i think it's one aspect that people don't focus on so much is that we think about the politics of the media and you know what's happening on tv and what's happening on things but there's a lot that happens behind the scenes in terms of policy and a lot of our problems are due to bad policy or bad policy implementation, whichever the case might be. So to see young Zimbabweans who are, you know, actively, and you said you've been working for a year um, and a half and working across the continent, I think it's very commendable what you're doing. So um, kudos to you. Um, I, I you think, know. thanks a lot, Chris. I really appreciate that, man. Um, it's, uh, you know, I think one thing I forgot to mention, which is very important, is that we are nonpartisan. We we are not concerned with the politics of the government that engages us because we want to you know again let it be known that we are about what what is your what is your policy is it going to be impactful on your citizens at the everyday ground level and how can we ensure that the mechanisms are in place to achieve that so i just wanted to put that uh, out there as well just so people know we are not a political um uh, organization. We are one that deals with governance and policy efficiency. Now, one of the interesting projects that we've dealt with, and probably my personal favorite so far, was uh, with the government of Senegal. And it was uh, uh, a policy that they've been trying to implement uh, in regards to 
increasing, again, very, very analogous to Zimbabwe, increasing youth uh, involvement in agribusiness. And they created a facility uh, that had uh, a sizable amount of, of money and ready to be invested in young uh, entrepreneurs who want to get into agribusiness. So we were invited along with uh, other professionals uh, and, and other institutions from uh, across Africa and, and, and some from overseas uh, to engage with the government and create some sort of effective framework to actually achieve this. So again, going back to, you know, as Chris mentioned, sometimes it's about policy. It's the what are we trying to do? But most of the time is the how. How are we going to do it? You know, and that is what we were engaging the government of Senegal with. And, you know, we're a small organization. We're a young organization. So our part was, you know, it, 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 it was bit part as well. You know, we weren't, you know, competing with the World Bank, but we're working with, you know, people from there uh, and, and people from other organizations like that. Um, but what they wanted was from a young professional's experience, what can we do to efficiently get these funds through certain mechanisms to these uh, young, young people? And, uh, and basically, you know, what we were trying to do was to create a framework that ensured that that, that happened. Um, and that, that's, that's, that's one of the, the policies we've been involved with. Uh, and again, my personal favorite, because the, the ministries that we're working with, we're working with the Ministry of Agriculture, and uh, the Ministry of Youth uh, there. And the, the ministers involved were very young and progressive ministers, which was also something very interesting for us to be uh, experiencing in Africa. <laughs> People who <laughs> could somewhat, <laughs> somewhat relate I to in that it's, way. It's, it's unique, it's unique for, for, for a, a minister you know, of you youth know, that is, is, is not... To, um, <laughs> a, youth, a minister of youth that's a youth himself. In a way, yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, it was very refreshing and uh, uh, again the way we would set up is we would set up with uh, people who are actually on the ground in, in in senegal as long as well as people from our team so we always make it a collaborative effort we're not coming in as as number one we're not coming in as non-africans uh, our entire team are young africans uh, from across the continent across cultures and then number two uh, you know, what we do, like I said, is we engage people who are actually on the ground who may not be with us uh, on, the, on, the, on the exec. Um, and, you know, we were able to come up with a, with a recommendation of a framework for the government to, um, to hopefully get the, those funds to people. Um, so, you know, I... I, I I have so many questions, but I think in the interest of time, we'll sort of um, just, um, you know, maybe focus on, on, on your experiences in as far as, uh, you know, perhaps outside of Senegal or what do you think some of the challenges are from, for your service being, and services like yourself being taken up by other governments? Because it's one of those things that it seems like, you know, a lot of our governments, um, could benefit from and uh, how do you in terms of obviously you have to market yourself and everything like that what what kind of resistances have you come across well that's actually a very good question and uh, one that I, I i had sleepless nights over trying to to trying to find out how to skirt over them 
number one, we're a small organization uh, now. So our competition is with big consulting firms, you know, the, you know, uh, the big four that engage with governments, McKinsey, BCG, and then, of course, with the World Bank and African Development Bank. And these are institutions that governments have been dealing with for years upon years, you know, and these organizations have amazing budgets and all of that. So there was that challenge of being able to navigate in a world where uh, these advisors already exist and have very well-established um, relationships with our governments. And then number two, like I said, we're a young organization, uh, not just in terms of how long we've been operating, but in our age. We're a young, uh, we're a young group. I think right now the oldest person is just over 40, you know, uh, and the youngest person that we had uh, was about 22, 23 years old. And of course, across our continent, when it comes to discussing how some of our elders can do better, you know, in, 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 a, in a said area, from, coming from a young person, you, cannot, you can imagine the challenges we would face in that regard. But the way we, we, we spoke to them said, listen, we're not here to criticize what you've done or what you're doing. We're here to enhance what you're doing so it can be done better, especially if it's for the impact of the people. And remember, we are young Africans. We're people who actually have a stake in our policies working because this is our country, this is our, this is our country, this is our continent, and we are the ones who are going to be here after you're gone. So we're not here to represent a foreign government, a uh, foreign international agency. We're here to represent our people as well in terms of the impact that they have. So we brand ourselves as young Africans invested in seeing our governance institutions work efficiently to have policies that impact people. And surprisingly, even if they don't engage us immediately, the conversations that we begin to have are more, more positive than, than, than negative, to be honest. You know, because I think it is an innovative idea. It's a space that, again, was taken up by these mega organizations um, and much, much older people, you know. But we have very skilled young people with very innovative ideas who just want to contribute towards their country's progress. That's um, such a comprehensive answer. Uh, you know, just I just have one more question in terms of, of how you operate. Um, you know, you're competing with these big organizations and you know, essentially these big organizations are there in place because they serve sort of the the global, you know, your your neoliberalist or your your neo-capitalist um, you know, economic system, the reason BCG, the reason PricewaterhouseCoopers, the reason the World Bank, the AFDB Bank, all these people are in Africa and in other other areas is because they essentially serve the narrative of of, you know, capitalist consumption, like the production method that's at least, you know, in academia, a lot of people say, you know, the World Bank is there because at the end of the day, they want your economy to behave in a certain way so that you can become a member of, of the international community and produce um, in a certain way. I just wanted to know what are the, some of the ideologies, because you may be nonpartisanship, but you have to have some sort of school of thought on how best to implement things um you know if if you're approaching something from you know a background where you do believe that individual um you know production and individual consumption and the market works 
then you might decide that, uh, for example, even the Senegal example, you know, you might decide that the best way to go about this is to give loans or give give finance and make that finance repayable. But if you're coming from a school where, you know, you might believe in a more collectivized or communized thing, you might decide that it's better to have, you know, cooperatives and, you know, have money go to cooperatives. Um, I'm just asking in terms of, of for me, because it's really important um, on how Africa is, is, is viewed on in the world and how we step into the next century and step into the future. Um, what sort of ideology you you use to implement, particularly economic, um, you know, policies? Is what's what what is yeah? Even pre- on a personal level, I don't know if that makes any sense at all. No, I definitely um, get what, I definitely get what you're saying, and it's, it's actually a, a question that comes up quite often when I discuss with people what it is that we do, and I've always said to people, Govern Hans Africa's ideology is not left or right. It is pragmatism, what works. And I think many times when people think about policy, they immediately think about politics, right? And, and you know, one could say that's, a fair, that's fair enough because it's very difficult to uh, separate the two. But when you have ideology, this is my personal view, and I'll tell you what I've told my team. Uh, what I feel is is often the the hindrance in progress is when you start from an ideological point of view not all the time but many of the time and then try and fit everything into that view even if it's not working so what i have been i guess developing in terms of my own view about it over the last few years is let's stick to what is pragmatic whether it ends up being classified as a neoliberal policy, a communist policy, Ashinabas, it doesn't matter. Because if we're really trying to impact people's lives on the ground, in the long term, in a positive way, let's do it and do it with what actually works. You know, And there are different contexts and different sectors that may need different approaches. But if we want to blanket all these, 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 these areas with one ideological view, um, we've seen across the world, not just in Africa, in other parts of the world, it may not work that way that you intended. And that's the problem, I feel, with ideology. Um, so from Governance Africa's point of view as an organization, I reiterate, we are not a partisan organization. We are not dealing with necessarily propagating a left or a right kind of um, approach to things we're looking at what's going to pragmatically work to impact people's lives. And that's as far as I can take it with what Governance Africa does. And I don't know whether you guys have, you know, Chris, whether you want to comment on what you feel about, uh, you know, the issue of sticking to a certain ideology or going a pragmatic route or just any thoughts in general about Z- it. Zoo has actually been running this interview. Now, this conversation... <laughs> yes, he, he should, he should just... Sorry, guys. Like, I, I didn't no, no, know. No, it's, it's completely no, fine. You, like, can see, you, can, you can see we have a CEO in the building. Because, yeah, because you're being asked the question. Like, like, like no, but it, uh, it's, it's completely fine. I think this is what we hope to achieve with, or with politics and beyond. You know, people come on, we have a discussion, we ask questions, and we hear different perspectives. Um, I always ask the ideological, we always ask it as well on this show, 
And I think for me, from a political point of view, it's important because, um, you know, it, it, it sort of takes a view of where, how you're going to go about your politics. Um, politics is a, it's, it's about people and it's about, you know, affecting or representing people. And so you must have a certain ideology, especially if you want people to follow you. I think that's where it comes in, is that you need support and ideology is a great way to build support. But from the policy perspective and what you've said, pragmatism is actually more important than the ideology in the sense that... Can I... Yeah, I'll let you come in. Um, I think it, it makes sense what you're saying in terms of pragmatism. Um, but then now you know you, you're going into philosophical arguments about it. You know, is it, are you utilitarian? So is your policy utilitarian? Um, you know, how many people's lives are you going for? The one that affects the most lives are you going for the one that has the best outcome what are you know what are you, what is your end game what are you looking towards and i think there is you know at some point a congruence or a meeting of ideology and that pragmatism because you're going to have to if if you are going to want to affect the most lives and help you know the most number of people then that's already looking a bit left but, you know, it depends on what it is. But, you know, pragmatism can be left or right. It doesn't have to be one or the other. But you'll find that dealing with politicians, you know, like you said, they try to then frame the situation towards their ideologies. And sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't work. But I think it's interesting. It's an interesting argument. First, first time I've thought of it. And I think I need to ponder upon it a lot more and, you know, get a bit more understanding. And then, you know, Henry... I was, I was, I was asking, you know, in the, in more of, um, I think maybe like, in terms of like, I understand the, 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 the ideological in terms, yeah, it wasn't so much policy. It was more about, you know, what toolbox do you use? Uh, what as a researcher or as, as solving a problem is you're, if you're a lawyer, yeah, if you're a lawyer, you have certain tools available to you compared to when you're an economist um, and you might approach problems differently. So I think that's more what I was asking in terms of the actual tools you you use to solve a policy problem and those inherently are you know, ideological because if you come from a social sciences background, you might be more inclined to you know, use um, people's experiences, um, qualitative data as how you solve a problem. If you come from a hard science or economics background, you're more inclined to use, um, you know, you know, surveys and hard data to how you solve a problem. So uh, what I meant sort of by ideology in a broader sense is that if you have a certain school of thought already, um, Based on, I mean, you know, I can I can sort of look at your at your guys, and I'll assume that it's it's you know it's from Canada, so it, it'll obviously follow a certain school of thought. But I just wanted to know sort of the tools that you have available to you um, when you approach a problem, um, and that's that's sort of for me. I sort of use ideology in that, but that's really what I meant is what tools do you have, um, and what tools does anyone else have um, as young people? Do we all or how can we use our, our tools? Um, 
our ideas and our ideology personally to impact um, our, you know, governments, mm-hmm. really. Well, I think, uh, okay, let me, let me try my best to, to answer that question. Uh, to put it plainly and in a simple way, we use both tools that are qualitative and quantitative. And again, when it comes to pragmatism, it just comes to seeing which toolkit is more appropriate in which analysis for and, and for what reason. You know, so there are certain sectors where we'll use more qualitative uh, uh, point of view. So let's say when we're in Senegal, uh, we had to use a qualitative perspective in mostly because we wanted to hear what young entrepreneurs in agribusiness were actually feeling and experiencing. And we had to then jump off from that and then start looking at data in terms of, OK, uh, if you're trying to reach X amount of people with X amount of funds, uh, let's see how we can come up with a frame and that's going to you know, uh, given what the feedback has been, I achieve the goal of not just the government, but of the needs of the young people. So it becomes a marriage of the two, right? Uh, and that's the one thing that, you know, I've been having to, even as I've been on this journey to learn more, because I'm a, from a legal background, uh, the tools of, 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 of analysis are very, are very narrow, you know. Uh, we, we don't deal much with quantitative issues and data, and, and being able to translate data into policy, you know, or use it to effectively uh, give a recommendation that is beyond just a high-level thought, right? But more so about what actually can be done. Move these funds from this sector or this part of the budget to here if you want to actually achieve that, you know. And then when you do have that money, yeah. disseminate this money this way, you know, uh, that's that's the one thing that uh, you know I had to learn more of as I was uh, you know growing in this role and growing with the organization. Um, but we do use all of those perspectives, and in particular, going back to you know we're incorporated in Canada because uh, you know that's where I was when I founded the organization. We're looking to also incorporate here um, and one or two other places in Africa as well um, as we continue to grow. Uh, but again, what makes us I feel unique is that all of us are, are, are young on the exact are young Africans who have been born and raised on this continent and who most of us do work on this continent. So in terms of also the perspectives and schools of thought that uh, inform us, um, it, it's, it's, it's a, it, I wouldn't even say it's a mixture. It's mostly coming from a uniquely African perspective. Uh, for example, our, our vice president and director of, of, of publications, uh, um, uh, Ms. Shingirai Mutero. She is uh, about to finish her PhD at Rose University. And uh, we have such amazing conversations and she has an amazing perspective when it comes to dealing with these issues from a deeply, deeply African perspective, you know, that challenges the schools of thought that come from either the UK or the States or Canada or what have you. But I think, you know, what makes us rich is that there's a collaboration and, a, and, and sometimes a tussle between the two to get what we feel is the best recommendation put forward uh, to these governments when we deal with them. And again, I hope I've answered the question in a not so long-winded way. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's great. Um, no, 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 you, you have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much, uh, Zua, for coming on. I know you, you came through to the studio because you wanted to observe how we go about our business, but we like to have different people and the work that you're doing, I think, is important for, you know, other people to hear about. 
So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, where can people find you online? Thank you both. Uh, for first of us, first of all, um, you can find us at www.govenhanceafrica one word dot uh, org. So www.govenhanceafrica.org, and we are also on Twitter. Um, so Governance Africa. Uh, we're also on Facebook, uh, Governance Africa as well, and also on LinkedIn. And then we also have the e personal emails of myself and, and my exec on there if you need to reach us. Um, but most importantly, if you feel you have a policy issue in your country, um, uh, in a certain sector that you want to try and address, feel free to email us and we can begin to see how we can possibly move that forward as well. Fantastic. I think there's a lot of policy issues in this country that need to be addressed. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, um, but yeah. Um, beginning with who's the real Nathan Norman? Nathaniel Meneru, he, he, he unveiled himself at Comrade May Jesus, he please know. stand up there. <laughs> now we want to know, now between Chris and, and, and the other Charamba, we want to know who the real Charamba mm. is. <laughs> Maybe we don't he, know. He, he unveiled himself and, and Henry, Henry's been having a good time because um, uh, the president's spokesperson and the permanent secretary in the Ministry of Information uh, comrade it's George. me George Sharma <laughs> I swear you know what I'm gonna ask I'm gonna ask Crims to take off my laugh because if he hears that I've been laughing about this on the show I don't think it'll go down well. yeah but it's him I think we'll discuss a bit more about it the next time we're here in the, we'll, we'll, in the long run um, but yeah no thanks so much Zouad. Um, you know you know, we asked how to get in contact, but how, how you know, what can we do? Um, what can someone listening to this podcast, how do they begin? What what can a, a, a master student okay. hint, hint, uh, <laughs> begin to do? <laughs> what can you do? Um, yeah. yeah. Great question. So, involved, um, you, know, I, you know, I might have a policy problem I want to fix, but uh, mm -hmm. I, do, I don't know how to even begin to, yeah, what, what should we do? Um, before we go, you know what I think. You know what you just. You know that that's that's the question many people ask. You come to us with that policy issue, and we've already been developing a framework in which we can work with you to present that forward, right? And in terms of uh, other things that we're doing, we're going to start a uh, a publication um, stream where we're going to have some resident writers uh, on specific uh, policy issues uh, as well. So, master students, if you want to just test out some of your thoughts and your theories. This is just going to be a more informal publication that you know you can have uh, a sitting in in one of the eight sectors of gov enhancement, as we call them, um, and you can you know, uh, spout some of your thoughts. And then, of course, if you want to do a policy paper with us, uh, that's when, again, you come to us and we're going to work with you uh, in a very rigid way um, to, to get that forward in a way that's uh, well well-researched and well-put-forward on, on your behalf. Right. Thank you very much, Zoa, once again. Um, my name is Christopher Farai Charamba. You can find me at Chris Charamba on all social media. My name is um, Maneru. And, no, I'm joking. <laughs> Go away. My name is Tawande uh, Henry Beatty, and you can find me at Henry Beatty on all social media. Um... 
Yeah, and, thank and, you uh, so much. And, 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 um, and Zua, yeah, thanks, yeah, Zua. Thanks for being such a great guest. And um, yeah, you did the things that need to be done. <laughs> well, we appreciate it. And you can also find and, me um, on, uh, at, at, at Zua Matondo on all social media as well. Twitter, Facebook, that's, not Instagram. Sorry, guys. <laughs> all right. All right, um, Capital 263, free to say it. Free to do it. Cheers. And now, and now, Capital 263.